Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of our talk on GI bleeding. And we're going to start off with diverticular disease. Uh, diverticular disease, diverticulosis, diverticulitis, the frequency increases with age. It's the most common cause of hematochesia in the elderly patient. It usually occurs in patients without diverticulitis. Diverticular bleeding is arterial in nature and so can be significant. Uh, it can cause a very rapid drop in the patient's hematocrit and can lead to the need for very rapid intervention. It's interesting, uh, even if active extravasation of bleeding is not visualized on arterial phase imaging, the presence of substantial diverticulosis can be a potential clue as an etiology of patients bleeding. And the truth is, I guess, if you have an older patient who's in their 70s, for example, and they're bleeding, well, you, what are you thinking? You're thinking about diverticular disease and you're thinking about an occult colon cancer. A couple points, the most frequent complication of diverticular disease is diverticulitis. Second most common is hemorrhage. Excluding anal rectal disease, hemorrhage, secondary to diverticular disease is the second cause of bleeding of the lower GI tract, but it's the main cause of massive bleeding in up to half the cases. It's estimated that up to 15% of patients with diverticular disease in the colon will bleed at some point in their life. This bleeding is usually painless and large, and in up to one-third of cases, massive requiring hospitalization and transfusion support. So this article by Blankus Valencia really does give you the essence of how important this disease is. This number of 15% of patients with diverticular disease will bleed at some point in their life, usually large and painless, is indeed very critical, and one-third require uh, hospitalization is very important. That article also does make the, the point that natural history of diverticular hemorrhage that, is that it stops spontaneously in up to 80% of cases, so treatment in many cases should be supportive treatment. In up to a third of cases, or maybe 30% of cases, specific medical treatment through endoscopic management can be done regardless of the type of management. And very few cases, radiologic or surgical treatment will be necessary. And again, the numbers, once the initial episode of bleeding stops, most patients will not recur, and only about 30% will have a second bleed. So you can see the ideal thing is to try to figure out a way of not being overly aggressive. You would hate to be overly aggressive if you don't need to be. It's an older patient, there's often comorbidities, and you don't want to create problems you don't have to create. Now. I mentioned before when I was speaking about GI bleeding, I mentioned that we'd like to do dual phase imaging. And here's a nice example. Now, I will admit that if you look at the patient's left colon, you should see the site of bleeding. And I gave you the two best images. But remember, you're looking at a large stack of images, and potentially you could walk by this, though you shouldn't. But if you took the same data sets, and instead of being arterial and you were venous, you can see how much more obvious the bleeding is. You can see the patient has pretty active extravasation. And if you take those same images in coronal plane, look at the difference between arterial and venous. It's indeed impressive. So this is a nice example of showing you very obvious bleeding in the venous phase. Yes, it's arterial, it's there, but it's so much easier in venous. Another patient, abdominal pain with GI bleeding, no known cause. Well, you can see on the coronal views a very nice example of bleeding in a diverticulum in the left colon. 
You can see it pretty nicely when you go from the coronals to the MIP. Again, MIP is very good at showing you the bleeds. Sliding MIP imaging is ideal for bleeding, and that's in any source, large bowel, small bowel, stomach, esophagus. And you can see that when you look at the bleeding as you go from arterial to venous, it's even more impressive. But in this case, one would have to admit you see it in any of the phases. Uh, and again, going to the 60-second post-injection, you can see how much more obvious it is. So this also tells you maybe another thing. Not only is it easier to see venous, but it's impressive bleeding, which suggests these are the patients that will need intervention. And again, going very nicely to the coronal and the MIP imaging, you can see how nicely you can see the bleed. Again, easy to diagnose arterial, but even easier to diagnose venous. And we know it's very active bleeding. Another patient, same history. You look at the patient's left colon, there's a bright dot there. Perhaps you might say, well, maybe it's some foreign matter in the colon. You shouldn't say that, obviously. But here it is, and looking at the MIP imaging, it looks like an obvious bleed, kind of that tracking is very nicely shown. As I scroll through those arterial phase imaging, showing you just a couple more pictures of that. And then if you take those same patients, you take similar scans, and you go into the venous phase, and you just look at the right area with the MIP imaging, look how much more impressive that bleed is. Also shows you how much more impressive the MIP image is compared to the routine coronal. And again, MIP is a projection technique. You're looking at a larger slab. And so many subtle sites of bleeding will all show up together, which makes the diagnosis oh so much easier. And again, here it is showing you on the left a MIP image, on your right volume rendering. So again, the importance of looking at multiple phases to make the diagnosis. Now, it's also been commented on, you need to look at the content of the bowel. Sometimes you may not see a bleed, but you see high density in the bowel. And this is true in the stomach or small bowel or colon. And yes, you could argue perhaps the patient on oral contrast. Maybe that's more true in the stomach, but there's no oral contrast here. And look at the bowel, the descending colon. You can see the fluid is high density. So you have to be suspicious, although I don't see on these images the bleed, but the patient has bleeding. And so when you go down a bit further, you're at the level beneath the iliac crest, you see a very active bleed. And when you look at the coronal MIP imaging, you see how it looks like a stream, like a jet of blood. Think about a couple of the other cases I showed you. And there have been articles talking about how the appearance of the blood can suggest a need for intervention. This is a jet. This is really active bleeding. A few more examples showing you that site of bleeding very nicely. And again, scrolling through the images going to Venus, the bleed is in fact better seen. It's larger. Again, a very nice example showing you both the active site of bleeding, but also the blood in the patient's colon. You see blood above the site of bleeding. And when you look down toward the rectum, you also see the blood in the rectum. Okay, a very, very nice example. Another case, patient with GI bleeding, uncertain why. Here you see a fluid-filled right colon distended. When you scan a little bit lower, you see the active site of bleeding. That's near the ileocecal valve. Just very nice from arterial to venous. Just a very nice example of active bleed. At first blush, you might say, gee, could this be contrast in the colon? There was no contrast. 
And here is again, you go to the coronal views, you can see how it's very clear about the jet effect and the contrast layering out. Just a beautiful example. Now when you look at numbers, Marty wrote an article, CT angio performed in the emergency setting with acute lower GI bleeding, uh, correctly depicts the presence and location of acto or recent hemorrhage, as well as causes the majority of patients. In fact, in their series, CTA depicted or helped exclude active or recent bleed in 98% of cases. And Marty goes on to say that rather than restricting it to cases where colonoscopy fails, we propose CT as the initial step. And this article is from five years ago, and you could see his proposal indeed is what carried the day in part. Now, when you look at bleeding, let's move down a little bit to rectal bleeding. There are a number of causes. You can see angiodysplasia, AVMs, varices, and the like, including radiation treatment, rectal cancer. We've looked at rectal bleeding because it's very easy to not diagnose rectal bleeding. Uh, again, CT can be very valuable. When we talk about nuclear red blood cell studies versus CT, one of the key things that CT is valuable with is not just the speed and accuracy of diagnosis, but localizing the site of bleeding. And this article by Rahman that CT will be valuable in patients from colonoscopy is not feasible and practical. It can identify bleeding from a range of sources, but it can provide a wealth of valuable information beyond the presence or act of a bleed, such as bowel wall inflammation, perirectal inflammation, or the presence of an underlying vascular abnormality. So here's a patient with ulcerative colitis and GI bleeding, and you can see on the axials alone the brightness, the enhancement of the patient's rectum, which in fact shows better on the sagittal view, but is particularly nice on the MIP imaging, where you see the feeding vessel coming off the IMA, the very impressive blush, again MIP imaging, and this was the site of bleeding in this patient with ulcerative colitis, the rectum. And you can see it again as I look and create these vascular maps showing you the prominent vasculature with volume rendering or with MIP, or again showing you it side by side. Just a beautiful example of the act of bleeding, the bright blush, and CT creates angiographic-like images. I can remove the bone, and you really have a great visualization. Now, we often can see uh, bleeding from hemorrhoids, we can see bleeding from rectal varices, which you can see very nicely in this case, and on the sagittal reconstructions. Rectal varices, as with hemorrhoids, large serpiginous veins can be seen surrounding the rectum, perirectal varices, or within the rectum, so-called rectal varices, best seen on portal venous rather than arterial phase imaging. Unlike a rectal AVM, these serpiginous vessels do not enhance an arterial phase imaging and no early draining vein is present. It's a very important diagnosis and one we indeed can make. Rectal varices are most commonly seen in the setting of cirrhosis and portal hypertension with a prevalence ranging up to 77% of all patients with portal hypertension. So when we do a lot of cirrhotic patients, it's very important to look at this region because Maybe the patient doesn't have GI bleeding now, but you can tell the clinician that it's something that can be potentially at risk. So here's another example. Look at the size of these rectal varices. It almost looks like rectal contrast. Here it is beautifully shown. As you go to the MIP imaging, you can see the large draining veins, that, that vascular malformation, 
both on the MIP uh, coronal as well as in the sagittal views. Just a beautiful example. This case also makes the point when you look at the rectum, the difference between sometimes early and late phase imaging. Now this is 60 seconds versus five minutes. At five minutes, you're basically saying there's some rectal thickening, there's nothing there. But look how obvious the problem is on the early phase imaging. So a very important concept about getting the right phases. And if you only have late phase imaging, you really can't exclude bleeding, even when it's very impressive like this case. Now let me just cover a couple more things and then we'll finish up this part three. We talk about aortoenteric fistulae as one of the causes of GI bleeding. It can be massive GI bleeding with a mortality which can be 100%. There's primary or secondary forms with the secondary being most common. That's a patient with prioritic surgery or graft placement. There's a classic triad, abdominal pain, massive GI hemorrhage, pulsatile abdominal mass. So those three, pain, bleeding, and palpable mass really are the key findings. It's interesting when you look at the cause of primary autoenteric fistula, it's when the patient has a fistula without an intervention. And again, that's fairly uncommon. It can be atherosclerotic penetrating ulcers. I think I've seen one case. Diverticulitis, foreign bodies, aortitis, appendicitis, GI malignancies. It's indeed very rare. Perhaps the reason it's so rare is you've developed it, the patients bleed and they die. They never make it to CT. Uh, again, that classic triad. While almost all patients will eventually experience GI bleeding, many do not at presentation. Sometimes we'll see inflammation of the bowel and an inflamed vessel nearby and we'll make and comment on that. So sometimes perhaps you will need to do surgery before the active bleed happens. It's kind of like the idea about uh, when you talk about fistula between the bladder and bowel, that prodromal period, you can say, hey, there's no fistula, but there will be. In those cases as well, operating early can save the patient from significant morbidity, even mortality. So again, very, very important. Now with aortoenteric fistula, the CT findings, ectopic gas within the aortic lumen or adjacent to the aorta, direct contrast extravasation from aorta to bowel or vice versa, but that's pretty rare. Effacement of the plane between the aorta and adjacent bowel is common. Focal bowel wall thickening adjacent to the aorta and periaortic soft tissue thickening and fluid. And here's just a nice example. Endovascular stents in place and enlarging aneurysm. You see the air anteriorly. You see the duodenum draped over it. That was an aortic enteric fistula. Beautiful example. Or in this case, in the patients who had prior repair, you can see the air bubbles around it in the graft. You can see the communication to bowel. You can see it on the axials. You can see it on the coronals. Or in this patient with aorta duodenal fistula found at surgery, look at the amount of air that's inside the, uh, the lumen. Again, any air except in the immediate post-surgical uh, timing is abnormal, and this is an aortoenteric fistula. And here's a nice example of direct extravasation of vascular contrast into bowel. That's pretty uncommon. This was a patient who had a prior open surgical abdominal aortic aneurysm pair and now presented with massive GI bleeding. It's really impressive looking at that large right iliac artery aneurysm with tethering of the sigmoid colon to the aneurysm. Just indeed very impressive. And here is that direct extravasation. Just really impressive. Again, an unusual case, very unusual. Um, a couple last comments. 
this article by Scola recently entitled, No Catheter Angiography is Needed in Patients with Obscure GI Bleeding and Negative CTA. They commented that the high negative predictive value of CTA for excluding GI bleeding suggests utility for excluding patients that are unlikely to benefit from classic angiography and subsequent endovascular therapy. CT is the first line of evaluation. Uh, they go on to comment as well, due to the lower invasiveness and higher yield of CTA, it should be favored over DSA for looking at occult GI bleeding. And again, they comment that the high negative predictive value of CTA for GI bleeding suggests utility for excluding patients. Again, this triage becomes so important. It's not simply radiology doing two more studies, it's eliminating a study. So it's really terrific in that regard. And this article by Zahid last year talks about CT angiography as a first-line diagnostic tool in detecting the site of lower GI hemorrhage and its advantages with a sensitivity of 91 to 92%. So it's not just radiology literature, it's the surgical literature as well. Uh, they talk about how extravasation of contrast can demonstrate a linear jet-like swirl to pool configuration. I showed you some cases like that. It provides a roadmap for intervention. However, negative first CTA is a good predictor that patients with lower GI bleed will settle spontaneously, not needing intervention. So again, good for detection, good for management, good for treating those patients. So again, very important. And one last article to mention by Coe, uh, comparison performed between patients who had positive and negative mesenteric angiograms after a positive CTA. You can see the success uh, of the study. Invasive uh, mesenteric angiograms were performed within 90 minutes of the positive CT were uh, nine times or almost nine times more likely to detect a positive extravasation. So again, the close correlation of CT and how it impacts management. So let me end there. CTA is a gold standard for detecting the source of GI bleeding and should be done as part of patient triage. And when I say by prior to triage, I mean don't be doing colonoscopy then worrying about CTA or doing angiography. You do CTA first and you manage the patient from that perspective. You need fast injection rates need about 120 cc's of contrast, you need fast skinning, scanning, not skinning, and you need excellent, excellent post-processing. So with that, that's part three of three. Hopefully I've given you a good look at lower GI bleeding, touched on some of the things we need to think about, spoke about protocols, spoke about interpretation, showed you some great cases. And with that, have a great day.